0: tracking the amazing growth of the 1st Century Church to challenge and inspire the 21st Century Church. This is Unstoppable Church, then and now. Recorded on location in Israel, Cyprus, Turkey, Greece, Malta and Italy. Bible teacher and church pastor Mike Beaumont is in conversation for the next 30 minutes with David Tavener.
1: As we continue this story in the book of Acts, we've come to a different part of Jerusalem. We can maybe explain in, in a second, but just just a little recap on, on where we were last time with the, the theme of promised.
2: Yeah, well, you know, actually our previous two episodes, we've looked at the beginning of the book of Acts of how Jesus spent 40 days after his resurrection, talking with his disciples, convincing them he really had risen from the dead, teaching them about the kingdom of heaven, but also making a promise that when he left them, he would send them the gift of the Holy Spirit to empower them and to enable them to be his empowered church, to be his witnesses. Uh, And we ended up with him returning to his Father in heaven, back to his rightful place, sitting at the Father's right hand on his throne, ruling over all things. And we noted how the ascension, Jesus being exalted and reigning is one of the driving themes through acts and because jesus is exalted miracles will happen thousands will get saved but also because jesus is ascended there will be much opposition and persecution because while some will love that some will hate that and we left them last time having left the mount of olives where we've just been and and come over here to the old city after that amazing event
1: it was kind of what next what what would they do next
2: Well, one of the things that Jesus clearly said to them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift that my Father promised. So, what they had to do was to take Jesus seriously at his word and to wait. So, they returned to the city, and that's exactly what they did do. They they waited. In fact, if we just read a few verses from Acts 1.12, they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. And when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying, and they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So they go back and they spend the next 10 days praying. Of course, they don't know they've got 10 days of praying. All they were told was wait. He'd not said whether it would be 10 minutes, 10 days, 10 months, 10 years. So they were praying open-endedly. What, we aren't told. But I'm pretty sure it would have been focusing around what Jesus said. Lord, you promised us the Holy Spirit. You promised to empower us. You promised us that your story wasn't over yet just because you'd gone back to the Father. You promised that your kingdom was still growing and expanding. So I imagine that their praying would very much have focused around these themes of God about to empower them to do the mission that he commissioned them to. And it wasn't just the 11 then? There were there were others there? Yeah, good you said the 11, of course, because number 12 had turned traitor. Hadn't he? Judas had betrayed them. And one of the things that Peter would do in this period, the end of Acts chapter 1 tells us, is uh, to replace that number 12 apostle. Why 12? Well, there had been 12 tribes of Israel in Israel's ancient history, And now they clearly felt the need to replace the 12 founding apostles. It's as if uh, Jesus was saying through that he is refounding Israel, Israel on a new basis now, not based on the 12 patriarchs, but on 12 apostles. So Peter profoundly felt as they were praying the need to replace Judas, which we find them doing at the end of Acts chapter 1. And as they're gathering there, yes, it's not just the eleven soon to become 12, when Matthias will join them. Uh, But also we read there, along with the women, which women? Well, women who'd been his supporters. We read about those in the Gospels. There were women who very much supported him, people like Mary Magdalene, but other women too, who used their resources to help support the ministry of Jesus and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Isn't that a lovely touch? Of course, Mary wouldn't have been a youngster by this point. And there she is with these young people. I love it when we still see in the church today older people delighting in spending time with younger people, encouraging them, praying with them. Mary, the mother of Jesus, oh, and with his brothers. Hang on, back in the Gospels, we'd seen his brothers uh, had rejected who he was. In fact, they thought he was mad and had come to drag him home on one occasion (laughs) because they thought... All this teaching stuff and healing stuff was going to his head. And now, here they are among his followers. What, what changed them? Well, we aren't told, but I think it's pretty easy to work out. It must have been the resurrection. Once they saw that their own physical brother had risen from the dead, as he talked about before, then I think that was probably the clinching point for them. And they too are now part of this group, a group uh, that Luke tells us in uh, Acts chapter 1 and verse uh, 15, now numbered about 120 in all of them, gathering together, squeezed into a house somewhere here in the old city to pray for this, whatever it is you promised Jesus, here we are praying, longing, waiting for you to act. So how does the story go on then? Well, the story goes on uh, in Acts chapter 2 with some events that Many Christians will be familiar with uh, events that took place on the Jewish festival of Pentecost. So why don't we just read the first four verses of that quite long chapter and and just remind ourselves of of what happened at the end of this 10-day period. Mm. Luke says that when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. We've come from the Mount of Olives down to the old city Just explain where we are
1: and indeed what we
2: can see. Yeah, well, we've come to a place that's called the Southern Steps. Now, of course, the temple doesn't remain today. It was destroyed for the last time by the Romans in AD 70 and nothing of it remains. All that remains are the some of the great retaining walls that Herod the Great built to sort of provide this huge level platform area that he could put the temple and its great courtyards on. And we are on uh, the southern wall of that. So over to our right on the east is the Mount of Olives. We've just come round the corner from there facing the eastern wall. We've come to the southern wall uh, and what's known as the Temple Steps. And uh, these steps, which are still here, right in front of us now, were steps that led up as part of a processional way. People would come up to Jerusalem from Jericho, even those who come from Galilee would cross the River Jordan, come down the east side of the Jordan to avoid going through Samaria, cross the Jordan opposite Jericho, and then follow that winding road up to the south of the city here and would end up at the Pool of Siloam. Uh, By the old city of David. Uh, And there they would probably wash once again ritually and then walk up this broad sweeping roadway that led to where we are these temple steps that led up to the wall and through what in those days would have been great arches as the staircase continued under the temple platform onto the temple platform, and they would have come up those steps, onto the platform, and wow, suddenly there in front of them would have been the great temple itself. And when you say steps, not quite like a staircase, because
1: uh, I, I'm thinking of like St Paul's Cathedral, the main entrance there with that grand series of steps. It's
2: a little similar to that, perhaps. Uh, it is in many ways, and yet in some ways it's also um, very... Different because these steps were designed in a very, very particular way. You see, they, they vary between 7 and 10 inches high, that's sort of 18 to 25 centimetres in, in new money, and they're 12 to 35 inches deep, 30 to 90 centimetres. So they're irregular, in other words. And that's not because they've got worn, over the last 2,000 years, that's how they were built, how they were designed, why? Because they were designed that way so you couldn't rush up these steps into the temple of God. You had to come up and walk carefully, sometimes a short step, sometimes then a bigger step. In other words, to slow you down and to cause you to stop and think about where you were coming, a reminder that you couldn't rush casually Uh, into God's presence. And, you know, I often think, wow, how different that is to many of our churches today where, let's face it, all of us at times can rush in at the last minute and if you've got a young family, you know, you're probably fighting with the kids to get them all organised and sorted and, you know, for many people the meeting's already started and you're trying to find somewhere to sit. You had to come very, very thoughtfully indeed and and carefully go up these steps, reflecting where you were, what you were about to do. Come into the great temple courtyard above that they would enter through both double and triple gates here uh, on this. Southern Wall,
1: but the question in my mind is why are we here? Because <laughs> I always associate, you know, the coming of the Holy Spirit to those disciples in the upper room, which is uh, some distance from here.
2: Yes, it's sort it's it's round the corner from from where we are, a little further away. So why are we here if Pentecost, the Christian event of Pentecost, took place in the upper room? Well, we're here because. I'm one of the increasing number of New Testament scholars who would think that that is not where Pentecost happened at all. Now, if you look at the text, it it doesn't actually say clearly that they were still in the upper room. The only thing it says is if the Spirit's presence filled the whole house where they were seated. And people historically have thought, oh, house, that must be the last house where we saw them, which was indeed the upper room. But when you stop and think about it, it, it's not really very logical a place for the Pentecost event to have happened. Why? Because the minute the Spirit falls, we suddenly find in Acts a whole crowd of people gathered and saying, Here, what's going on here? Well, How on earth could thousands of people have gathered in what you and I have seen, the incredibly narrow streets in that part of Jerusalem where the upper room we think was located? It is absolutely impossible for thousands to gather there. Second, we see that when they eventually responded to Peter's preaching, they were baptised immediately. Where in that part of the city? There's nowhere to baptise them. But here where we are, it seems to scholars these days far more likely that the Pentecost event took place here. Why? First, it was Pentecost. What was Pentecost? Well, Pentecost had existed long before the Christian festival of Pentecost. It was a Jewish festival. And by New Testament times, uh, it celebrated two things. One is it celebrated harvest. It always had done since it was instituted in the Mosaic law. But by New Testament times, it also celebrated the giving of the law through Moses. So here was a particularly appropriate place and time for God to give the Spirit. It would be on a day when a new law would be written, where? In people's hearts and when a new harvest would begin. Now, not of crops, but of people. So it was an appropriate day. It was an appropriate place. Why? Because these temple courtyards up above us would be the only place that thousands of people could gather. Just a few years ago, there was a a Muslim celebration up here that gathered 400,000 people Hmm. up on top where the temple would have been. So it's the only place in Jerusalem where huge numbers could have gathered. Third, we're surrounded here by dozens and dozens of what Jews call mikvot, ritual bathing pools. So he is exactly the place where they could have been baptised. Now, why would the apostles be here and not hiding away in the upper room? Well, because they'd been brought up as good Jews. And as good Jews, there were three occasions when they knew they were commanded to visit the temple. And Passover was one of them, Pentecost and Tabernacles was the other. And I think that would have been so ingrained into them that, you know, maybe they put on their best cloak with the biggest hood and covered themselves up so they wouldn't really be noticed. And I imagine them coming here round from that upper room, walking down the western wall to the southern and coming up these steps where we're sitting, entering through the great arches, coming up into the courtyard and then perhaps sitting under the grand portico, Solomon's portico. Uh, at one end where there would have been shade. And note that they were sitting. Why does Luke notice they were sitting? That seems an unusual detail. Well, again, scholars think that they were sitting, waiting for the start of the Jewish Pentecost celebration, hidden away, probably in a corner, trying not to make any notice of themselves when suddenly God takes over and they're very much the centre of attention. So increasingly for New Testament scholars, they feel that either where we are on the steps or just at the top of these steps in the temple courtyards itself would have been the place. And that's so powerful because, of course, for Jews, where could you find God? Inside the temple, inside the Holy of Holies. But at Pentecost, it's as if God, the Holy Spirit, breaks out from the Holy of Holies and breaks out into ordinary people and fills them with his spirit, just as Jesus and the Old Testament prophets had promised.
1: And as you said just a second ago, this all happened
2: suddenly. So just explain again what happened. I mean, it's quite remarkable. Yeah, well, there they are, you know, quietly trying to keep themselves out of attention, waiting, sitting, waiting for the start of the Pentecost celebration when we read, suddenly... A sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven. Now, by the way, if listeners want to do a little Bible study sometimes, do a Bible study word search on suddenly. Because, you know, very often God seems slow from our point of view. But my goodness, when he moves, you'd better have your boots on ready to shift. There are so many suddenlies in the Bible. They've been waiting. They've been praying. They didn't know that Pentecost was the day. They just knew that Jesus had said, wait until you receive the gift my father promised. They had no idea that today was going to be the day. Let's not forget that. So there they are waiting for this celebration and ceremony to begin when suddenly, oh my goodness, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind. Interesting, it doesn't say a violent wind, the sound like it. It's the nearest we could get to it. And again, that seems to make sense because if you're up there in that courtyard, a sound like a wind echoing, reverberating around those courtyards would have captivated everyone's attention. But somehow they knew that this wind wasn't just a wind, it wasn't just a squall that had come up. That often happens. And you can't see a wind, so it was there was something visible as well. Uh, absolutely. This sound from heaven filled the whole house, how how does a sound fill the whole house, I I can't quite get my mind around that, but something had happened with that wind, or what sounded like a wind, filling the whole house, but you're right, they they saw something along with what they heard, and Luke is such a careful historian, you know, he said this wasn't something psychological going on in their minds, they heard something, they saw something, they experienced something, all these came together. They saw what, notice the word again, what seemed to be like tongues of fire. It wasn't actually, but that's the nearest they could get to describing it, that separated. So it looks like it was one, what looked like a big tongue of fire, and suddenly it separated and landed on all these 12, 120, how many of them were here and through that filled these disciples with the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, any listeners who know their Old Testament will know that the Holy Spirit was often symbolised in particular ways and two of the most common and powerful images in the Old Testament for the Holy Spirit, a wind or breath You know, the Spirit was blowing over the face of the earth in Genesis 1. In Ezekiel's prophecy, God breathes and sends his breath on the dry bones and they come alive. Wind and also fire. Fire used to come down on the tabernacle and lead people through the wilderness. So wind and fire were very, very common pictures of the Holy Spirit. So any good Jew, of which there were hundreds of thousands up there on that day of Pentecost, would have known, this is no one other than God coming in a particular way. And as that happened, whatever it was, what was the impact on them? Well, Luke says that they were all filled with the Spirit, and first thing that happened to them was they began to speak in tongues, as the Spirit enabled them. So here is now, there has been some internal change and they start to speak in tongues. Now, look, tongues isn't something weird and mystical. The Greek word for tongues is the ordinary, everyday word for languages. So they start to speak in languages that they had not learnt before.
1: And a lot of these were from up north.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, ordinary, unlearned men, a lot of them were... Fishermen, remember. Um, So these weren't necessarily learned men. Listen, they would probably have known some Greek because they had to use that for their trading. They would have known Aramaic, their everyday language. They would have probably known some Hebrew, uh, the language of the Bible. But they certainly didn't know all these languages. And so one of the things we would have seen if we'd gone on to read is that when this crowd up there on the platform hear about this now remember this crowd isn't just from Jerusalem it's not just from Judea Luke again notes they've come from all the countries of the known world then why because it was Pentecost and remember Jews had to turn up at Jerusalem the male Jews that is for the festival of Pentecost Uh, and Luke says when they heard this sound a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language and utterly amazed they asked are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of them hears them in our native language and they go on to list some of these languages? Of course, there's always mockers around when God does anything, isn't there? Even among God's own people at times. And, and so we read in verse 13 that some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. You know, they've been on the bottle. They, they, they've, they're still drunk from last night and continuing into this morning so there is this powerful impact this change but it's not just a sort of internalized personalized experience that they have of the spirit expressed through praising god by the way praising god the crowds say what is it we hear them extolling the mighty works of god so they're not prophesying they're declaring wonders of god they're praising god in languages that they've never heard. So they're not just sort of randomly speaking in a foreign language? No, they're very definitely being led by the Holy Spirit to declare God's praises. What better place to do that than at the top of those steps there in the temple? It's almost a sort of United Nations moment. Well, it is, isn't it? And it really was United Nations. Uh, It's interesting how Luke lists uh, all of the the nations there, you know, How is it that each of them hears us in his own native language? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Nacia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya, near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own language. In other words, languages from the whole of the then known world around the Mediterranean across the Roman Empire, certainly not gibberish, language of praise to God that they had never learnt and yet that the Holy Spirit had released them into as he came to empower them that day. Again, the question in my mind is, but what for? What's the purpose of all of this? Yeah, well, it, it, it wasn't for games and it wasn't for fun. Um, I mean, clearly it was to praise God, it was to declare something great about God, and I wouldn't want to minimise that for one minute but as they speak the next thing we go on to see is that as these people come and say what's going on here and again let's use a bit of godly imagination there we are you know up in the temple platform wind fire falling on these guys who were trying to hide suddenly they're on their feet declaring the glories of god and the crowd starts to come and think what's going on over there what's going on and they start to gather and now Here is the transformation that happens through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given to us not just to make us feel nice, not just to connect us to God, but to empower us. Because the very next thing we read in verse 14 is, then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Oh my goodness, just moments earlier, Peter had been, no doubt, Cowering, keeping out of the way with his cloak over his head, trying not to be noticed. Why? Because the religious authorities were still looking for all these disciples. And yet, suddenly, he's changed. Suddenly, he's got a boldness. Suddenly, he's got a I don't care what you think. I don't care what you're going to do to me. I want to tell you what's gone on here. And he starts to explain what's gone on. Um, the first thing he says to them is, look, you know, these guys aren't drunk as you uh, think. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. They've not had time to crack open the bottles yet. So it's (laughs) not that, guys. No, rather. And then he does something interesting. He takes all these Jews from all around the known world then back to their own scriptures, back to the prophet Joel in the Old Testament. And with a form of Jewish exegesis called Pesha exegesis, which means... That, that he was talking about here, is this that's happening now, that is this. And he goes back to Joel's prophecy. When Joel says in chapter two, in the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. And he says, you remember that, that Joel said, this is it. This, that promise made so long ago, and we spoke in the previous episode, didn't we, about the promises mm-hmm. of God. Sometimes there might be a delay, to be in a hundreds of years delay from Joel's prophecy, but here it was. This is that. This is that happening. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on us, and suddenly he is preaching boldly, and he goes on from that to now preach about Jesus with incredible boldness. Not a little short homily. Well, you know, I don't think it was too short because he really goes through pretty much the life of Jesus and even Luke's sort of summary of it uh, is quite long. Uh, He takes them back, Luke says, Men of Israel, listen to me. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did among you. Now, I'm sure he told them a little bit more than that simple summary there. And then, oh my goodness, it gets very courageous. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. My goodness. You know, accusing here his own people of being complicit and encouraging the crucifixion of Jesus. You know, this takes courage. This is a man who is truly emboldened. But that wasn't the end of the story, he'll go on to say. God raised him from the dead. And not only that, that wasn't the end of the story. God took Jesus back to his right hand in heaven there. And there he reigns and he says, exalted to the right hand of God. He's received from the Father, the promised Holy Spirit that he's poured out what you now see and hear. So incredibly bold preaching about Jesus, not about him, not about his experience. Sure, he's not embarrassed to talk about his experience, you know, and when, when we share about Jesus today, our own experience is still very powerful. Most people today are fascinated to hear your story. So starting with our own story, what happened, how our life was changed, how we encountered Jesus is still powerful in this modern day and age. But it can't stop there because the story is not about us. The story is about Jesus and that is where the emboldened Peter takes people from what they had experienced to the Jesus who had done that, who lived, taught, was crucified, rose again from the dead, having shown that he'd conquered sin and death and hell and now reigns with the Father in heaven, still expanding his kingdom through his unstoppable church. And what was his punchline? Well, his punchline was really repent <laughs> um, I love what happens as he gets to the end of his sermon clearly people's hearts are moved brothers what shall we do they say and, and therefore what follows is really important because this is the first time in the new testament anyone has ever asked how can we experience what you've experienced and Peter the emboldened Peter says this repent and be baptised, every one of you, right here in this mikvot all around us. Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You want this inner change that we've experienced? This is how you do it. Number one, repent. That means saying, I, I was wrong. I've been going the wrong way in life. I need to stop, turn around and start doing it God's way. I need to be baptized, immersed in water as a symbol that my old life has been dead and buried and done away with and I'm starting to live a new life following Jesus. Third, to know that you have received his forgiveness. Whatever you have been, whatever you have done, whatever has been done to you can be forgiven through the blood of Jesus shed at the cross. And fourth, to receive the gift Of his Holy Spirit and Peter says the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off all whom God will call well David you and I are far off today 2,000 years far off only a few yards from where it happened but all around the world wherever people are listening to this today they're far off geographically but it doesn't matter whether we're far off geographically or temporally this promise of Jesus that we can be empowered through the Holy Spirit is still as true today as when he made that promise. And all we have to do is reach out to him and ask him. In John 7, Jesus said, he who believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John adds, now this he said about the spirit whom he was about to give. And if we will ask Jesus, rivers of living water can still break out from within us, The power of the Holy Spirit can still come upon us and within us and out of us, not to make us feel good, though I tell you we will feel good, but to empower us to be part of his unstoppable church.
0: Mike Beaumont and David Taverner, travelling from Jerusalem to Rome and beyond to track the amazing growth of the first century church and what that means for the unstoppable church of the 21st century. There are more Bible podcasts from Mike and David on the UCB player app and major podcast platforms. Check out Jesus then and now or Bible books in 30 minutes.